Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And today we are joined by Professor Roland Bettencourt, who's here to talk with us about his book, Byzantine Intersectionality, Sexuality, Gender and Race in the Middle Ages. We have some content warning before we begin this episode. This episode will include mentions of historic misogyny and queerphobia, one day queerphobia in scholarship, and there'll be a mention of abortion. It will also include one instance of swearing. If any of that sounds like something you don't want to listen to, feel free to skip this episode and check out any of our other content. Thank you very much, Roland, for being here today. Welcome to Queer as Fact. Um, Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's very good to have you here. First off, I thought I'd just start by asking you to tell us a little bit about your book and what it's about. Yeah, so my book is really a wide-ranging history about sexuality, gender, and race in the Middle Ages. And so each chapter of the book focuses on a sort of um, small history that takes us across several centuries to better understand issues, for example, about sexual consent, Um, about sexual shaming, um, trans and gender variant identities in the Middle Ages, and also constructions of race. Okay. Um, We also, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are very interested in how you got, what your sort of career trajectory to this point has looked like. I know we have a lot of listeners who are interested in queer scholarship and sort of getting into the academic fields. Are you interested in talking a little bit about that? Of course. Um, So I always knew that I wanted to go on to higher education in some capacity. Um, And so from very early on, I was sort of PhD minded in many ways. Yeah, I mean, at one point I wanted to be a theoretical physicist, but I'm horrible at math. I also always say that I love that I picked out of out of all the science side, the most abstract and sort of like, quote unquote, useless one. Um, I also love the implication that at some point you were like, I want to do a PhD. I don't know what in physics, history. Let's find out. <laughs> yeah, no. So a lot of that experience was, um, you know, I, I think I, yeah, I was probably better at math than I like to think I was, but um, I really like asking big abstract theoretical questions mm-hmm. that really had no place in our day-to-day life. I think that's probably the best way of explaining it. <laughs> it wasn't just like, I think my name would sound better with a doctor in front of it. Um, and from that, I, I sort of like, you know, had a bit of a rude awakening applying to colleges and realizing that of course, like my math was not excellent. Um, and so I started looking back at what like I felt I was like naturally good at in a sense that I, I showed to have an ability that was in some capacities out of the ordinary for all the other things. I think K through 12 education is very difficult and it can be very radically different to what academics actually do. Mm, Yeah, Um, yeah. And so, you know, like I don't spend time memorizing um, facts and dates. It's much more different and complex and creative than what anything in sort of high school would teach you. Yeah. And so I really noticed that at least on the sort of facts and date side, I was really good at art history. I took AP art history um, my junior, no, sorry, my sophomore year of high school. And from that point on, I realized that I sort of was good at it in some capacity. And so when I got rejected to most schools I applied to for theoretical physics, <laughs> I went into art history like day one. I changed my major like before I got to school. Yeah. And from there, I sort of moved forward. Um, I think I was always like the frustratingly obnoxious student because like it wasn't that I was obsessed about grades. I was more just obsessed about ideas. And so yeah. um I was always like moving forward and everyone was like, well, you need to do this, this and that first. And I'm like, no, but I want to do that. And so I'm going to push forward (laughs) as much as I can. And so I probably was a very obnoxious undergrad in many ways. And I would always stop my dear professors in the middle of a snowstorm to talk about like Derrida. And so it was was a very, you know, that, that was basically my undergraduate education. I went to a PhD in art history. I will say that 
I didn't know what area I wanted to focus on. Um, I really liked art history. It was a really good fit for a lot of the questions I had. Um, and I sort of, it almost felt like I was spinning the wheel and picking a field because I, mm, yeah. I was just really, I wasn't attracted to anything. In fact, I thought that the things that I was most attracted to, I was intellectually the worst at. Like, ah. I don't know, Jacques Louis David, really, I, I don't know what interesting things I could have possibly had to say. Um, but <laughs> I realized that when I was working on like um, art that I found sort of difficult or like there wasn't just like a, some sort of like visual, like, oh, that's cool. Um, I was working harder intellectually to think through it. And so that's what attracted me to both modern art um, and medieval art. And having been raised Catholic, I thought the Western Middle Ages was too close to home. And oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as, a, as a queer person running away from home, I was yeah. like, no, I... So Byzantium seemed right, you know, people who spent a lot of time writing about images and how they function and theorizing images. I was like, that seems like the place for me. Um, <laughs> and so it's a very, it's always been a very strange experience to have found myself within space of the Byzantine empire. Um, and that's, that was sort of honestly my trajectory. I was really, <laughs> one of the reasons why I worked with the advisor that I did um, and for my PhD was not necessarily just because he was a very good Byzantinist, but also because he was a very good art historian and had very um, rigorous articles about our methodologies and how we approach the past. And so that's really what my intellectual trajectory was going into the PhD program. And my dissertation was not on anything related to gender, sexuality, and race. Um, this project really emerged out of all the things that were sort of like in the margins of my notes mm -hmm. as I was doing all yeah. my other research and thinking like, oh, what? And so I always say that this book came out like Athena, fully formed out of my head. Um, <laughs> that's fine. Like I literally, convenient. yeah, I literally wrote the table of contents and then I executed it. That's Never oh, that's, that's wild. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was really because it was one of those, it's those types of projects that I think you only have the luxury of experiencing once you've done other projects. Mm -hmm, yeah. That just comes out of the, the realities that you're confronting along the way. And so it's one of those really delightfully organic things where you're, you're really enriching um, rather than entering a void with a sort of um, hypothesis or question mm, and you really don't yeah. know what you're doing. It's a very different experience. And so that was probably one of like on a personal level, one of the delights and why I always tell any grad student, do not listen to anything. I'm Take this as an anecdote. <laughs> do not take this as writing advice in any capacity. <laughs> Um, yeah, that sounds like just it. wait your book will just magically happen <laughs> yeah. one of the questions that we were going to ask you was how you went about finding sources for your book it sounds more like you just kind of gradually had them come to you until you went oh there's enough here to make a book out of or did you struggle at any point to find like the kind of sources that talk about the kind of stuff you wanted to talk about yeah no I mean I think the most impressive books that I read out there are always the ones written by early 20th century scholars who are like and in this obscure source they talk about this and you're like oh, yeah. how did you find that there was no like keyword that could have tipped you off there's no it's that type of like research that comes from like expansive reading mm, yeah, um, yeah yeah and I think that was one of the delights of this book that it emerged in that way not because I'm I've read everything in every Byzantine text and I know the field like that but just because it really came from that type of um broad um form of knowledge of a handle of your field um then as I was in this process of enrichment, it really was about, I mean, I will, I'll be very honest, it's about following your instinct. And I think any historian knows that when you're actually working, you, you begin to follow your instincts. And if, if you have a fairly good handle of your field, instinct usually pays off. And so that's mm -hmm. really how I was, I was approaching it. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of moments like in the trans lives chapter, um, like working with the medical text, I was like, there are medical intersections to these conversations about um, gender, Mm, um, yeah. let's see what these texts might have to say and let's look in the areas and and from there like you know as a true historian where you're not just cherry picking things that echo your argument you're really seeing like how do they handle x that was definitely a moment where I knew that even if they didn't say anything that was too good for what I was trying to argue yeah. for <laughs> they would still engage it in some capacity. And one of, I think one of the most striking aspects of doing this research is that I think from my own, just as a sort of, as a citizen, just <laughs> you would expect as a lay yeah. person, I'll say, um, you would expect like, oh, you're gonna have a hard time doing this project. 
And I think the yeah. most striking thing that happened was, no, you in fact are writing a very small history because there's so much out there mm. that just hasn't been looked at this way or just with the sensitivities. And yeah. I think that is really a, an important thing about having um, sort of queer people and allies and so forth mm. working on these topics because you see things in a different way. And that means that, you know, in many ways, I think one of the most striking things about this project was recognizing um, forms of pain historically, like the sort of difficulties um, of a gender identity or like sexuality, mm -hmm. like you recognize so much more in not just here's a the direct quote, but rather the, the fleshed out story overall, you recognize the types of struggles that I, you know, echo the experiences of modern queer figures. And so for me, that's been one of the most pressing things and why I think that queer sensibilities on these projects are so important and pressing. Mm -hmm. And so that's really has been sort of how I navigated these sources. And like I said, there's so much more work to be done and more um, complex work. I feel like in a book like this, where I, I felt like I was setting the stage for a conversation rather than you know, doing the nitty gritty complex and sort of more theoretical analyses yeah. that I would do in a work that has an already established field within my discipline. And so for me, that was also something very important about what the sort of stakes of this work were, which is just to sort of be as bold as possible and, and clear as much path for others um, to do work and even myself in the future to continue to do work in these areas rather than be sort of the definite volume that mm. takes 30 years and is <laughs> yeah. outdated by the time it comes out. Um, every queer person in Byzantium. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's also so easy when you're trying to do a more systematic survey to mm. think of yourself um, to fall into so many pitfalls of like precisely like outing like past past people um, mm, and yeah. getting into this obsession with like find every queer in Byzantium. It's like, well, it's a lot more complex than that. Yeah, and so I think yeah. retaining a certain level of it exists let's not deny it. And here are the fragments of its existence can be more powerful in sort of creating more possibility and, you know, not taking for granted the fact that someone is heterosexual or cis by our definitions. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I think in a field like, I guess you're working in where this is quite new in a lot of queer history, um, because so little has been done, it's it's quite exciting for historians and it also means you can do more work around, and I think you do this in your book, around kind of just what would it have been like for queer people then? What impressions can we get about how they understood gender or how they understood sexuality rather than having to like really hone in on some specific niche corner that haven't hasn't been explored yet you can kind of just look at the whole thing and say what ideas can we get and where can we go from there I think you do do that in your book yeah thank you um no and that's also really important because I think one of the very critical aspects also about this is to think about the ways in which these stories actually change the canon and change mm. you know, the survey text mm. that I would give my students in Intro to Byzantine Art. And I think it's important then to like begin these types of questions by looking at the most on the surface expected sources and see how looking at it with a new perspective can change the information that's evidenced in there. And that's really important because it means that it's not just some niche area that mm. if you go into this topic, you can delve into. It's something where, you know, it's not just here's the class on gender and sexuality. It's like, here's the survey of Byzantine art and here's how it's had to change because of these yeah. interventions. And I think that's yeah. really important um, as a way of, you know, even when I when I teach methods for art history graduate students, I, I don't want there to be like one class on race and one class on mm. gender, one class yeah. on sexuality. Like, if we really want those changes to be efficacious, every class needs to be changed by those lessons. And so that's yeah. why I've always been someone that likes working with things that are on the surface, um, precisely because there's such a fetishization of like the, you know, what's not been published ever. And, you know, mm, it's yeah, discovering something in the archives or something. Yeah, like exactly. Yeah. Of that idea. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, I only go into the archives when I need to be petty. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the way? That's a part of the story. <laughs> I think being petty is the part. <laughs> um, I did want to <laughs> ask you a question 
sort of on a similar topic, I guess, about your like word choices in your book. You're very mm. sort of confident about using words that a lot of academic texts would shy away from. And some of them are like sort of modern identity terms like transgender, but you also are very happy to use phrases like slut shaming to talk about people fucking. Like, was it a deliberate choice for you to like move away from sort of traditional academic language? Yes, um, very much so. I mean, I, I think as a millennial sort of writing now for, you know, the generation that when I wrote this book didn't quite have a name, but Gen Z, um, <laughs> yeah. I was, I really wanted the book to be bold in its language um, because of the fact precisely that there's so much like um, fear and concern about using certain types of terms. And I really didn't want my book to be able to be co-opted um, by, mm. you know, the alt-right or whatever iteration it's taking on in a particular day. Um, and so I was very conscious about the fact that I'm, you know, within queer like spaces and very much like safe spaces, academic spaces, it's great to have like very nuanced conversations about like how terms might not apply and how certain um, um, sort of markers of identity like are of course very different in how they're articulated in the past. But I think that for a sort of outward facing audience, my idea is really about what are like the best practices and representation to communicate this to a broader audience. Understanding mm -hmm. that the book is not just for my colleagues who have every capability and every intellectual prowess capability, um, research skills, et cetera, to push back on, on my terms and so forth, but rather to understand that there is a room that can be created for, you know, students, undergrads, high school students who might potentially read this book and understand there might be a place for them either in classics or in art mm, history yeah. or in Byzantine studies or in medieval studies. And so for me, that language was very important to understand just how many incredible um, strides we've also made in creating a very complex language in the past decade even to describe all these various issues about gender, sexuality, um, various iterations of identity and so forth. And so I really wanted to tap into that language to understand that as a sort of like, you know, a sort of modern iteration of a critical theory um, mm. that is, you know, developed on Tumblr rather yeah. than, you know, RIP Tumblr, but still, um, <laughs> or the Tumblr of 2014. I mean, yeah. and I, I've been saying this a lot more recently, like this book was written for like Tumblr 2014. And, you know, <laughs> it's a shame it came out in, in 2020, um, even though 2020 needs it as much as, yeah, as, um, much 2014, as 2014, <laughs> if not maybe more. Um, but I, that, that was something very um, conscious about um, the book and why I started with the Monica Lewinsky quote about precisely like hearing this question of how many, because I don't think that's a unique experience, like how many people um, just in the period of growing up have realized that there's, there are terms to describe what you're feeling. And that's mm. such an empowering thing. And so that's sort of, for me, what I, what I want to do for the field. And I always yeah. remind myself that, you know, our stakeholders are not the medieval past or the people who lived in the middle ages, even though that's important. And there's a, a sort of active mourning in writing a history, especially one of queer figures, but mm. it's also about the present and the future. And so for me, it's very, this book is about creating space for academics. And that's really, and for, of course, for communities as well, but, you know, also for um, queer communities to become academics, to look deeper into this history and to understand that there is work to be done. Mm, and yeah. a lot of it. Yeah. 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 Um, so we talk a lot, maybe off our podcast, but amongst ourselves with our <laughs> podcast about kind of bridging the gap between academic history and public history and like the history that you see on Tumblr or something like that. And you've obviously, you're trying to do that. And I was wondering what have been the reactions sort of among your colleagues in trying to write, do research into these fields that perhaps aren't so much research into and also trying to write in a way that is using this language that is not so academic and how you had positive reactions or negative reactions in the work you're doing? Um, I think the biggest split, and I mean, it's always hard to gauge academic reactions because <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> They're sneaky, um, and sometimes they the reactions are. that take center stage are not the are not really indicative of the whole and the mm. ones that, you know. Mm. I I will say this that in my memory, the impressions that I've had the most um, have been academics who who have been in I think in certain like large sort of lecture hall type spaces. Mm -hmm. I think there's usually a pushback about terms. 
And usually a pushback about terms that I'm like, okay, great. You have a problem with the terms. Did you hear any of the material I showed? Just forget about the terms. Like, can Mm. we talk about the material? (laughs) Um, That's usually, yeah, Yeah. it's literally just like the mind shuts off. And, you know, I I was, for example, I'm I'm very open about these things. I was up for a job at one point, um, institution shall remain nameless. And it's very (laughs) clear that I did not get the job in large part because of um, the terms I was using to describe and because of the presentation. Um, And, you know, um, it's, it's a reality that I'm aware of. I also really value the emails from, you know, grad students and early career Mm. colleagues who are like, that's amazing. And yes, I might have pushback here or there, or um, thank you for this contribution and what it allows Mm. us to do. Like, I think that's really what matters. And that's the type of contribution where, you know, even even if it encourages a few a handful of students to get into the field because there's work to be done, that's all I really care about. For me, it's really mm-hmm. a book that is meant to be destroyed in the sense of like, it's it's a tool to yeah. build another future and it should be outdated in 10 years, hopefully less. <laughs> it <laughs> should, you know, it should, it should make work. contributions that we can move beyond. And I think that's yeah. something that's really important. And I think as academics, we need to always keep in mind that we write in both tenors and sense, like we're both writing sort of like sometimes the classic book on the subject that, you know, really has done the survey that will mm. like be the staple for 20, 30 years. And that sometimes you're writing books or articles that are meant to make a change, interventions like, of various scales that are have a, have a yeah. shorter timeline. And I think that's something very important and healthy for us all to balance. And so part of this has also been like making an effort to write a series of op-eds and so forth so that this work can also be translated to a broader audience. Mm-hmm. And I will say just by writing op-eds, the biggest challenge I've had is oftentimes like that, you know, in, I don't know, whatever amount of words, 800 words that you need to write things, you're going to butcher a lot of the nuance yeah, um, just yeah, to get the material yeah. across. And that's like one of the most terrifying things. And one of the mm. hardest things, because in some cases, <laughs> I sometimes want to communicate quite simply that beyond the data, the levels of rigor and nuance and complexity that academic work takes is something that there's really not much of a venue for in a lot of our popular culture. And that's probably Mm -hmm. one of the biggest, for me, one of the biggest impediments in this type of mediation between like public history and academic history. Yeah. Which is not that you're, it's not that there are different histories or it's just that we're not, we don't have really a a sort of discursive space where Mm -hmm. certain amounts of nuance or complexity is really expected to unfold. I mean, podcasts are great because they open up spaces for this but yeah mm-hmm. yeah absolutely I think we find that with our podcast too and trying to have that conversation like on social media or something there's just no space to put in the yeah. level of nuance <laughs> yeah I feel like the history doesn't how matter. do you fit that into a tweet yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah right, I exactly often, I often imagine what it would be like if historians though took the same kind of sort of nuance to the way they talk about like heterosexual and more conventional expressions mm-hmm. of sexuality in history as they do to like queer sexuality like if people said the same kinds of things about oh they were married in medieval times as they do about oh they were bisexual in medieval times you know did marriage mean the same things for them can we truly use that term (laughs) yeah this is this is completely my my entire whole thing I'm like Okay, so we have a dozen, dozens of books on women in Byzantium and Mm -hmm. like men in Byzantium or not even, I mean, that's been studies on masculinity have been more recent, but they're all about like cisgender assumptions that are projected onto the past. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, really, we're not going to qualify those terms as being in any way anachronistic or, you know, what, how about we talk about the various Greek terms used for these various identities? Mm -hmm. Um, That's, that's a type of rigor. And I think it's important because you having that type of rigor then would inevitably can make you confront the realities that I'm trying to shine a spotlight for. So I, I think in sometimes like my approach has often been like throwing my hands up in the air and being like, <laughs> okay, so we're going to look at these trans saints now because you have not created a space for them because you don't yeah. want to include them in anything except the most normative conceptions of gender. Um, yeah. And the most like somehow like they, I feel like sometimes even like reading the narratives about, you know, trans saints and how they've been described as like nuns in disguise and all this like yeah, transvestite yeah. Mm-hmm. saints. 
it's almost, I mean, tragically comical, the levels of like the acrobatics done to be like, but they were just women. I'm just yeah. like, okay, wow. So <laughs> sure. I, at one point I said to myself, okay, great. So there are no trans people in the middle ages. Great. That's what you believe. Okay. So I'm going to refer to them as men. They're just men and moving on. And I think that's, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, I think, I think the biggest thing in this book has been confronting transphobia. Mm, um, yeah, yeah. For me, that's been the biggest thing. I think that especially, um, you know, the queer chapter is probably the most well-received, even though I think it's in many ways, like the least exciting to me. Um, <laughs> I guess once you accept that those saints could be trans, that's kind of the main step. Like once you take that step, the yeah, main thing exactly. Is you <laughs> You're like, I've said what I've needed to say. Yeah. Maybe this was a man. <laughs> Um, my, my whole thing is about, you know, thinking about these very, they're very interesting, um, conceptions of gender that have a longstanding history. And, you know, I, it's one of those moments of like, I don't really, if you don't want to use a certain term, well, at the very least, I would hope that you would sit with me here and think through this very interesting figure who identified as male, um, his entire life, um, had very interesting story that intersects with a series of different issues of sexuality, gender, and race that are explored mm. in these stories. Mm. And like, that's the type of like, almost like conversation that I wish in those moments I could have. And, you know, I, one of the things that I also learned was the challenge with that is that, you know, the point has often been brought up like, well, maybe if you didn't use these terms, it would become more accessible to these people who don't want to hear them. And I always, mm. I, you know, I think respectability politics doesn't get you very far. Yeah. And the people who don't want to be convinced are not going to be convinced. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's something that's yeah. very, very clear from my experience um, with this. And it's, you know, it's it's hard. I think academics, sometimes we forget that we exist in the present. And I don't mean that in the fact that our, our scholarship should be aimed for the present and so forth, but just that our prejudices are also coming from the present. Mm, and yeah, absolutely. I wish there were more sort of critical reflection that like, unfortunately in our work, you can't stop being an intellectual. You can't just like be like, okay, so there's my nine to five and now I'm going to stop <laughs> which I feel like sometimes a lot of academics do precisely. Yeah. And so I, I feel like that's something that's important also in recognizing that, you know, if, if you've never read any, any sort of trans studies material, if you've never actually taken the time to educate yourself on like the conversations on trans identity, both in the present and the past, you know, it's, it's difficult to then just raise your arm in a talk and say, but these people aren't trans when you've not done any of the reading. Mm -hmm. And so it's that type of like disjuncture that I think for me was the most depressing and jarring and dealing with this to see academics who would in other capacities be very rigorous about the intellectual trajectories of ideas and theory, um, just completely just use their like garden variety, whatever they think these terms might mean. Um, yeah. <laughs> and try to use that as a critical apparatus, which I, yeah, mm. has yeah. very interesting parallels and in other aspects, like talking about how there's no conception of art in the Middle Ages in the 90s. <gasps> um, this was a big conversation so that therefore we can't really call it art um, because it was in wow. use and so forth. And so these are they're interesting legacies of this that I think are really fascinating and which I've also written about. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um. For the sake of our listeners, I might just get you quickly to just quickly recount one of those stories about trans saints, because mm -hmm. obviously they probably don't have the book. But they should get it. <laughs> they should get it. Little teaser for them. And also just I'd like them to sort of have a clear idea of what kind of stories we're talking about, because you sort of discussed in that chapter, like an archetypal story of this, of a trans, like a trans religious figure. Yeah. Um, and so um, I will, I, I can give sort of that archetype of some of the tropes yeah. we see. Um, and I will also say that one of my biggest goals in the chapter was to understand um, these stories of um, these trans figures, but also understand that trans is a wide rubric. And so to mm. also think about other forms that are not as attached to medicalized notions of trans identity. And so mm -hmm. that's something that was very important. So I, I'll share this one of these archetypes with that caveat, and I'll talk more about that. But so essentially in some of the stories that um, I've been most um, drawn to, you have a figure that for some reason or another um, enters a male monastery. So for example, in the case of Marinos, you have a figure who was assigned female at birth, 
um, chooses to follow their father into a monastery um, after the mother dies and lives out their life, his life as a, a man. Um, almost in all those stories, the, the figures um, are understood as being eunuchs. So that's how they understand that they don't have a beard and so forth, um, and that they have usually a very youthful face. Um, and so in these stories, um, after the figure is in the monastery, um, various things happen in some stories. Um, this is only a part of the figure's life, and they leave the monastery and live the rest of their lives as women. Um, and in other cases, and the ones that I'm most drawn to, there are these various moments where the saint in a very typical sort of saint's life, their sanctity is challenged, except mm -hmm. that in these cases, that sanctity is their male identity. That's the, that's the sort of object mm -hmm. of how that challenge gets articulated. So in the life of Marinos, um, he is accused of having impregnated um, the daughter of an innkeeper who had in reality slept with a Roman soldier and gotten pregnant. And so Marinos basically goes to the abbot of the monastery and says, yes, it is true. I have sinned as a man. Um, the um, boy after he is born is given to Marinos. Marinos is kicked out of the monastery and basically spends three years um, basically um, nursing the child outside the monastery. And quite interestingly, by nursing the child by taking sheep from nearby shepherds. So really interesting mm -hmm. idea that um, Marinos cares for the child as his father. And yeah. so eventually um, the monks take pity on him and allow Marinos back into the monastery and he um, passes away and they sort of this moment where it's like, oh my gosh, Marinos could not have impregnated um, the innkeeper's daughter because, you know, there's this moment of sort of outing of the figure as having been um, female assigned at birth. And that's sort of like this moment of outing. And then usually in the narrative stories, they'll change the name back um, to the female name. Um, the figure will be treated as she in the stories. And um, there will be some sort of like climax to the story. So in, in the case of Marinos, the innkeeper's daughter is possessed by a demon and <laughs> she approaches Marinos's tomb. She is magically cured. There are a series of fascinating moments there's even this like divinely sanctioned abortion that turns out to be a, a demonic possession in one case. Um, but in other stories, you have even more co explicit confrontations with the idea that um, the monk is really wanting to live out um, his life, um, you know, as a man and not be outed in any capacity. So there are these very like, this is what I mean about that pain, like these pleas with the abbot who knows the quote unquote mm. truth and this mm. sort of begging of, please do not prepare my body after death. Do not let anybody find out about me. And I think for me, those are the stories that are the most poignant and difficult in thinking mm. about that type of pain. Um, where, And then, of course, the, the pain also comes from the fact that at death, there is a moment of outing. You know, this description yeah. that um, he had women's breasts that were shriveled up um, like leaves is a common trope that appears um, these figures often um, are described as stopping, ceasing menstruation that happens in the case of Marinos. Um, mm -hmm. You have this sort of withering of breasts and also this idea that because of their aesthetic practices, their skin turns dark and rough. Um, all traits which are understood in medical texts and other literary genres as being associated with masculinity. Um, sort of rough, dark skin is something that since ancient the ancient world, um, Greco-Roman world, there are associations between um, sort of darker skin and masculinity. And so these are the common tropes that emerge in a lot of these stories um, that really present this interesting sort of parallel to how we understand trans identity today and sort of in a more abstract way of also had these sort of conversations about the body and how the physical body has changed to various actions, how gender is associated with these various um, bodily articulations mm -hmm. um, connected to sex. And my goal also in the chapter is to, you know, understand that trans identity is not just about um, how one presents. And so understanding also creating room to understand that there are various dimensions to how figures could have also articulated um, their identity not matching the one that they were assigned at birth. Um, so not just having to have some series of gender affirming practices, um, even though there are these interesting parallels for cis um, gendered people in Byzantium, 
to have various surgeries, for example, um, mm. when like men have enlarged breasts precisely because they are an affront to their gender identity. Um, mm -hmm. So there is this sort of medicalized notion of gender that's quite interesting in parallel. But I was also interested in understanding how, you know, erudite figures in Constantinople might have described themselves as, you know, not having a binary gender identity that they, you know, um, in the case of Michael Psilos, who was the court philosopher in the 11th century, this really poignant and beautiful description of just, you know, that I, I sort of am composed of both notes of the lyre, both the high and the low notes that I, I'm sort of a plurality mm, that some yeah. of my, the attributes of what I do in my profession are very much gendered as male. And so I have a masculine disposition in that sense. Um, but also that I am, um, you know, there's all these wonderful moments where Silos talks about, you know, running into the woman's quarter and gossiping with the women and living out their lives because, you know, they're very emotional and so forth to like describe these feminine attributes as well. And what's interesting beyond, you know, the rhetorical stereotypes, of course, that are being deployed to articulate this is a figure who's very self-consciously talking about gender identity mm. and how it doesn't match a binary. And this is all also being communicated in letters discussing the birth of the emperor's son and being like, what matters if he's been sort of like physically stamped in this way, understanding that the gender um, identity of the, of the child will be different to the gender um, the assigned at birth. And so there are these really interesting moments that in some ways are even more powerful than a saint's life where you are trying to say, yes, mm. here's a trans figure, mm. because they demonstrate a very nuanced conversation about gender where there's actually a fear oftentimes in some of like the more negative texts, a fear of how precarious gender is. Yeah. That um, descriptions about, you know, here um, in one text of it's a rhetorical exercise, basically training students how to um, comment on a refutation, how to write a refutation mm. um, and a counter argument. And it picks up the story of Atalanta, who's this sort of virgin huntress from antiquity. And basically the whole thing, the whole thesis that the author is trying to teach you how to write is, well, it's impossible for there to be this virgin female hunter because how could she be a woman if she's doing all these manly things? And that text in its paranoia reveals so much yeah. about how fearful people are about the fluidity of gender, which I, I really love. And I think that's, I think, one of the strengths of this type of work is when you're able to not just identify figures or out figures in the past, but rather to find um, discourses around mm. these categories that demonstrate that there is a critical um, understanding of gender in ways that, you know, in the mainstream, we have not had until very recently um, <laughs> yeah. in our culture. Um, frighteningly recent, and I won't give like a timeline because I don't want to confront that reality or um, really um, limit it in any capacity because it is really striking to see in these medieval texts these very complex understandings of gender fluidity and stuff in ways that when I was growing up in the 90s I didn't have available to yeah mm -hmm. and to see it sort of blossom and flourish in um, our culture in the past and very much in sort of uh, English speaking, but also in other spaces as well, um, globally is something that's very pressing to me and how it's so important to understand how terms can be useful to think through and our sort of methods, even in our own lives. I mean, that's definitely how I feel about approaching my own understanding of my sexuality or my gender identity. And given what I was, the conditions I was raised under and also just a coming of age in a moment where there weren't as many terms and um, useful categories to think alongside with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one of the interesting things that you said before is you were talking about how um, these trans saints were kind of asked to prove their masculinity, for example, in the case of being accused of impregnating someone, and in the same moment they're being asked to prove their sanctity as a, as a monk, for example. And you talk quite a bit in the book about kind of this link between holiness and masculinity, masculinity and kind of the things that are considered feminine, like breasts or menstruation, withering away or stopping kind of in tandem with becoming more holy. And I was wondering, especially because you're obviously very consciously writing for like a modern queer audience, how do you navigate kind of what is to some degree like misogyny going on there and kind of seeing men as the more holy of the, the more binary? holy gender. Yeah. yeah. How do you navigate talking about that while still trying to create a text that 
is obviously like a very positive one for a modern queer audience. Yeah, I mean that I think that's been like the ethical challenge in writing the book. I <laughs> mm-hmm. mean, especially with the chapter on slut shaming, like where it's like you want to like you want to attack the misogyny, you want to call it out for what it is, because it's just it's just it's just misogyny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, And yet you also want to create room for the understanding that whether the particular historical figure being attacked existed or not, there are tropes here that are being deployed that could be used against various women and men who would fit under these categories. And so how do you like, you know, create some sort of like sex positive space um, for Mm -hmm. a medieval audience that's gone while also understanding that you're creating that sex positive space through invective that is really just rooted on misogyny. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, it's really interesting because in a lot of these stories, um, the key thing they all share, um, even the stories that are like delving into sexuality, it really is misogyny and transphobia as sort of like the close attendant to misogyny. Um, And so that is um, a very pressing reality to understand where so much of even like the same gender relations between men are precisely lodged on various transphobic um, attacks, which take their efficacy, not only from a certain transphobia, but a transphobia that heavily relies on misogyny as its Mm. sort of source. Yeah. Um, There's not, because, and I think comparing it to the sort of modern iterations of transphobia, there is less of an idea of sort of these narratives of disguise, um, Mm. which I think is something that's a very like um, part of the the modern tropes and particularly in the United States with like bathroom bills um, and so forth that are all about, and even bans on like sports and so forth. Um, The real sort of like panic that exists in these sources are about men becoming women. And that also, and that's of course why you don't have um, trans saints lives who are praising men, you know, these figures who are assigned male at birth who live mm. their life as as female because that would be sort of a step in the wrong direction in this progression yeah, toward yeah. holiness and so it is interesting how in order to find any scraps of those lives you really need to then start thinking in very you know you have to start I, I think in just doing the research you almost have to think about like how would a misogynistic like medieval author be writing about this which I hate, mm-hmm. but it's literally like, yeah. I, I literally had to be like, oh wait, do we have stories of like men in disguise trying to sleep with women in in like nunneries, like mm. in female monastic communities? Because those are the only moments where you would probably have articulations of those types of lives. And sure yeah. enough, you know, you know, there's the story of Gregory of Tours, which is um, oddly connected to Byzantium, but it's precisely um, tied to this idea of a eunuch who's like living in a nunnery because the abbess is basically having sex with the eunuch. Um, and so these these sort of narratives um, are very important to keep in mind because it is a reminder of just the, it's, it's the imprint of how homophobia, transphobia, and misogyny work together in the past. And it not only is a roadmap to understanding where evidence and sources exist for lives that have been erased or um, diminished and minimized in some capacity, Um, but also a very important way of understanding that to write any form of affirming history, you also have to understand that some of, a lot of your evidence is often coming from very deeply toxic texts. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, I think the best way to handle that for me was to be as open as possible about these realities and to try to call them out. And it's hard. It's really hard um, to try to, you know, there's something about taking on terms of abuse um, and using them subversively. And that's something that, of course, you can't do for um, a medieval audience. And that's really mm, hard. It's, yeah. it's different than a, like a living community in the present. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did think it was interesting, the contrast between sort of transphobia and Byzantium that you were writing about and modern transphobia, because modern transphobia is so kind of constructed around the idea that no, as a trans person, you're wrong. You can't be a different gender to your gender assigned at birth where the Byzantine approach seemed to be much more like, we're aware that people can do this and it terrifies us. (laughs) And that is why I love Byzantium. Yeah. That is what I utterly... No, I, I do think that that one text that you're particularly referring to in, in yeah. many ways, um, I mean, it's just incredible to see like a deeply transphobic author, like tell us so much more than he would ever want to tell us about yeah. how he actually thinks about gender. 
like this mm-hmm. whole like fear that childhood should be like a gender confirmation, like and not sorry, gender conversion. Um, therapy, is like just make school. sure yeah. that mm-hmm. yeah, it's terrifying. I mean, you know, it's terrifying as you know a, a subject who in many ways was not raised that differently from mm-hmm. medieval sources, but also understanding it's terrifying to understand um, just how paranoid they are about gender. Mm. And I think that's one of the, I mean, if I could keep writing the book, like if I could just like continue on a certain path, I think that's definitely one of the areas that I would definitely want to see a lot more research done on, which is less so thinking about lives that are expressing figures that are um, um, gender variant in some capacity or non, uh, non-binary, but to understand also the discourse around gender mm-hmm. um, and to understand just the the anxieties about gender fluidity in some capacity, um, which is, yeah. yeah. I always say that these authors writing these invectives reveal in every capacity, no matter what the topic is, they say a lot more in their paranoia um, <laughs> than they do in what they're actually attacking. It's always yeah, the side yeah. notes where I'm like, did you just say that? <laughs> like, <laughs> she will truly transition her gender. Um, yeah, I'm like, wow, the language is also just, and for anyone who might doubt the Greek, it's literally means, um, I think in the official translation, it's translated slightly differently, but it literally means like interchange um, one's gender. So yeah. <laughs> It's pretty clear, yeah. I think we yeah. often say that throughout studying history, I've definitely heard that said, if you're looking at like legal texts, there wouldn't be a law against it unless someone had tried it. Like people wouldn't be having this conversation about how you have to conform to the gender binary. Unless, unless people weren't There's doing a bunch it. of people out there who weren't conforming in the way that they wanted. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you know, one of the, the sort of like beautiful things as well about this type of research is that, um, and I, I definitely um, go into this, is just like also the prohibitions of like, just like simple, like vaguely defined cross-dressing, mm-hmm. um, which would apply to these, um, like trans monks as well and yet you still have these um saints lives praising their lives even though those actions whether you ascribe it to um the figure's gender identity or not would have been prohibited by church councils mm, and yet yeah. you still have like it's yeah it's it's even even if you want to misgender them and say that they were women all along and that's it you would still have to confront with the fact that they were breaking the law like mm-hmm. they were breaking the church councils And so that's also something that I think is so important um, to keep in mind, particularly addressing the history of Christianity, is that there's a lot of variety about how people practice their religions. And that just because a church father once said something does not mean that that was A, actually enforced, or that Mm -hmm. B, it was a primary concern, which I think that's from thinking about modern Christianity seems so foreign to me because it's, you know, a lot of the obsessions of modern Christianity um, and and its conservative iterations, sure, there might be precedence to those concerns, but they weren't Mm -hmm. like the number one hot topic issue, Um, you know. I always try to tell people, I'm like, no, the Byzantines were concerned as to whether you were putting yeast in the Eucharist or not. Like they weren't concerned <laughs> about who you were sleeping with all that much. Um, yeah, if you were yeah. having too much sex, maybe that might be something that they might talk about, but they were a lot more concerned on a sort of um, like theological mm. basis on, you know, the big picture items. Like did <laughs> God suffer on the cross when Jesus was crucified or did he not? Like those are the, those are the questions that mm. dominated early Christianity. Like the Bible doesn't yeah. make sense about this whole Trinity thing. How do we make it make sense? Like, yeah. These are <laughs> yeah. these are the things that the church councils were dedicated to, not yeah. who you're who are you sleeping with today. Um, mm. And so that's I think also one of the things that's so important to keep in mind that you know not only do you have a a religious tradition that doesn't really find its own understanding until centuries after its sort of genesis but it also is a religion that for you know its first 500 to 600 years is really debating the basics in very mm-hmm. highly philosophical ways and using ancient philosophy to articulate its its arguments and that's something that you know I often like to embrace and that's the yeah. that's the Byzantine in Christianity that I always embrace in my thinking about this topic. Um, It is kind of interesting that at the very start of the interview, you said you turned away from medieval like Western Europe because you were trying to avoid Catholicism. (laughs) And this is the place you wound up. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. It's it's (laughs) utterly ridiculous. And I think that 
anyone looking at this from like from the outside of Byz- just from outside Byzantium would mm. literally laugh. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I, I think it's yeah, it's just like why what? It's the same thing. Um, no, and, and I think that is one of the the beauties also about Byzantium is that it is even within the larger expanse of the empire and its sort of neighbors. Like Christianity is never singular. There are now Macedonian yeah, yeah. Christians, Chalcedonian Christians. Um, you know, traditions that are alive and well and thriving today um, from Ethiopia to Coptic Christians, Syriac Christians. And so I think that's something also that's so important about, I think, my own vantage point from the so-called East in Byzantium is that it's also already a very queer Christianity and it's just Mm. a clearing of its institutions in a sort of vague sense of the term. It's it is not, not only is it very much opposed to Western traditions in many capacities, but it also is a Christianity that has a lot of variety in it um, in how it articulates even the most foundational tenets of the mm-hmm. faith. Mm-hmm. Um, you've touched on it a little bit before, but I thought we would wrap up by asking you what you're working on now and what you kind of see as coming next for you, but also for queer Byzantine scholarship more generally. Yeah, I think there's a lot of work being done at the moment on these topics and work that, of course, begins before my book and so forth. Um, Definitely in late antique studies, um, there's a lot of work that's being done in early Christian studies. And so it makes sense that this will be a very important and rich space um, in the coming decade, hopefully. Um, there's a lot of work to be done and there's a lot of, it's a very important moment to do this type of work and it, to to do it holistically, because I do think, um, we haven't talked as much about this, but all these issues of, for example, gender deeply intersect with issues of race and so, mm-hmm. and processes of racialization. Yeah. And so it's very important, I think, right now to be doing these types, this type of research and thinking about um you know, down the line, like what, how are these narratives going to help us rewrite the history that we thought we knew in very important ways? Um, so I'm excited. I know there's a lot of work being done on Unix, for example, um, which is mm-hmm. why I actually don't go too deep into Unix. I'm like, they're there. They have a function in how they unsettle certain um, thoughts about a gender binary. Um, but yeah. I don't mm-hmm. dwell on them because I know that there's a lot of great work that's ongoing. Yeah. Um, on Unix. And so that's something definitely to keep an eye out for. Um, I think that the field is definitely having more of a sincere reckoning with a lot of these issues. And I think there's going to be a lot of development in the coming years, at least I hope. I think we Mm -hmm. always hope that and (laughs) those watershed moments don't quite ever come, but I'm optimistic. Um, and for me, I, I don't know, I think the, the first thing that early on in this project, the first thing that dawned on me um, was the sort of gaps um, that these intimacies and secrecies, secrecy creates. Um, mm-hmm. And so I've been very interested in a project on secrecy, um, also thinking a lot about conspiracy theories and these sort of communities that are built on sort of the idea that you know something that others don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been thinking a lot about um, a project that looks at the ways in which certain forms of knowledge in Byzantium that was concealed or exclusive creates sort of these various iterations of community, whether that be as simple as baking the bread um, for the host or for you know mm-hmm. the prospera as it is known in the Greek tradition, or for example, military knowledge. You know, some I think some of the most um, interesting on a sort of pop culture level side of Byzantium are things like Greek fire or the automata yeah. in the of the throne of Solomon in the imperial greeting room, um, throne room. Um, that you know, these are things that we don't have much evidence for. And so I'm really interested in like what we do with these very interesting and important aspects of a historical moment that we don't have the evidence for. I mean, obviously you can see the mark of what I've been doing there very clearly. Um, and so that's a way of me of thinking of the, these issues of secrecy and absence historically in a broader sort of context, in a sense, thinking about how these questions that I asked in this book are just as important when we look at other aspects of Byzantium that might not have nothing to do directly with these questions of gender, sexuality, and race that might have somehow been taboo or ignored and some or mm-hmm. purposely obfuscated. But yeah, I guess a conversation about communities formed around secrecy and conspiracy also has a lot of resonance for a modern day audience. That That is why, I, I mean, I'm sort of like, we'll see how our future unravels. Um, <laughs> unravels, that's but, a promising <laughs> 
yeah, I, I, I heard it coming out of my mouth and I'm like, no, I'll, st I'll stand by that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, because it is, it is a very important thing. You know, I, I, I do very, I've written um, very clearly about how, you know, Procopius' secret history looks a lot like things like QAnon. There's this sort of like, Mm. yo I'm close to the source mm. um I was there I was there when it was happening and this is what actually happened that I couldn't tell you because I was gonna get killed like literally that's what Procopius's mm. prologue says and that's that's very interesting um yeah because we've also so long thought that those types of narratives are useless and that nobody read this nobody cared like who would ever believe a story that goes from, you know, factual things that we can corroborate through other sources down to Justinian's head would disappear as he paced the Imperial Hall in the middle of the night. Like no one would believe both those things. I'm like, oh no, people would definitely believe. They <laughs> yeah. definitely would believe both those things. And so that's been something that's been very much on my mind to think of like how, yeah, communities structured around secrecy and also the allure of secrecy. Mm -hmm. Like rhetorically, like there is is an allure to secrecy that is very interesting. And Michael Psilos actually talking about things like alchemy and um, sort of the occult sciences more broadly even says at one point that um, they will possess the knowledge, but don't worry, they will not use it. So they can be erudite <laughs> and learn everything about astrology um, and necromancy and everything else. But as long as they don't use it, that knowledge is okay to possess. Uh -huh. yeah. So it's very interesting these how secrecy can get articulated throughout these various um, avenues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think the fact that you're going from writing about kind of sexuality, gender, race, these things to this topic about secrecy, I think it's a sign that the questions that are asked in queer scholarship and perhaps come a bit from queer theory that you're using this book are questions that can be used more broadly to have these conversations that are relevant to different aspects of history and different aspects of what's happening in the world today. Yes, completely. And that's exactly how I think about my work. I think that, you know, as a scholar, we are, hopefully we are somehow unified in our methodological approach to the world. Mm -hmm. And sort of seeing how that sort of methodological identity and unity um, can refract sources differently is something very powerful that we each can offer in how we see the world. Um, and yeah, there's something I find there's something very powerfully subversive to go from that project to something that seems traditional in content, but using the same methods. Yeah, it's sort of yeah. like to be like, gotcha. Like I, I use the same. <laughs> <laughs> you thought this was a heterosexual book, but. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it's like, nope, gay again. <laughs> yeah, every time. <laughs> yeah, right. no, yeah, no, I, and I've, on the side, I've also been working on a project on, on Disneyland that is sort of like the other side of the coin to this, which has been a lot about me taking like my very good Byzantine methods and applying them to the modern world to understand precisely how like um institutions um ritual and so forth intersect with like lived realities and how that's sort of like um used to aestheticize a certain world and so forth and so i see myself so i, I have a broader series of projects on like modern simulacra mm -hmm. um which i think is very much of the same tenor as what i've been doing um in byzantine studies and, and which intersect more with other aspects of my research um more than necessarily Byzantine intersectionality but yeah it's all part of yeah once we get a job interview and somebody was like but but you you do so many different types of things and I'm like yeah but I'm still the same person so there's a unified <laughs> project behind it um, yeah <laughs> anyway oh, that's very good that's very good I can't say I expected you to mention Disneyland but here we are <laughs> here we are indeed here we are yeah. um we might wrap up there. Yeah, I think on that note we'll wrap up and we'll look out. You for... can cut out the you can cut out the Disneyland part. <laughs> no, Disneyland <laughs> stay. Disneyland's good. <laughs> like, oh, you said you were going to wrap I was up, but I was going to say I do often think that it would be worth, and I think that reading like modern anthropology texts a lot that it would be worth it if they took the same kind of critical thinking frameworks that historians do to mod more modern work. I feel like some, yeah. some of that yeah. kind of gets lost in modern modern scholarship. Or like no, I, I modern constantly, things. constantly have this issue where I'm like, especially, I have to say, especially doing like this, like Disneyland research where I'm like interacting both with amateur historians, but also like yeah. um, historians who are working in various fields. And even like the most like quantitative like anthropologists and sociologists that I hear speak on the matter, I'm like, 
oh, this is this is academic research. Like this seems very odd to me. Like, <laughs> yeah, like it's sort yeah. of like this jarring moment of like, oh, why don't you just write this like a historian and be a little bit more like nuanced about like this, uh, this is a type of source and this is a different type of yeah, source. And yeah. Instead I see like spreadsheets and charts and I'm like, uh-huh, interesting. I guess that's what um, I <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no. So exactly. I actually, I, that's one thing that I actually, I love that you said that because that's something that I always think about. I'm always like, I wish somebody would just write as a historian about the present. Like just, yeah, yeah, just absolutely. take a modern thing and treat it like it's a thousand years old and just deal with the same level of nuance and like care. Because it is also funny. I think one of the biggest challenges with writing about the present is that people will often be like, oh, but did they really mean that? Did they really intend that behind that video or that mm. that sort of music video? Or did they actually know what they were citing? And is that actually a thing? And I'm like, well, but as, as historians, we take like a dozen steps back and look from a bird's eye view at how everything is working in a sort of synchronous moment or diachronically. And so if you do that, all these things that seem disparate are coming together in these moments. And because we are part of like this larger cultural snapshot. Yeah. And so, yeah, I definitely like, yeah, sorry, side rant, but um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I understand. I agree. <laughs> Um, okay, now I'll let you actually wrap up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Thank you very much for talking to us, Roland. It's been very good to hear about your work and about what's happening and what might be happening next in learning more about queerness in Byzantium. And I would encourage people, if they can, to get your book, which is called Byzantine Intersectionality, Sexuality, Gender and Race in the Middle Ages, if they can find that anywhere. It's a good read. And also, if you're not an academic, as we talked about, it's a very approachable read, no matter who you are, I would say. Thank you very much. Thank you for thank you on with us. Yeah, thank yeah, you. Yeah, this I'm... was a really wonderful conversation. So I really appreciate it. That's good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. With that, we've been queer as fact. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find the rest of our content on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. And you can also email us directly at queerasfact.com. Or if you want to write to us, you can write to us at our PO box and you'll find that address on our website, which is queerasfact.com. You can also email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com. If you want to support us financially, you can do that by signing up to be a patron and that gives the opportunity... That gives you the opportunity to get some free merchandise, to vote on some of our episode topics, and to show your support for Queer as Fact. Uh, you can also buy our merchandise at our Redbubble store, or if you want to support us and you don't have the financial means or you don't want to spend your money on us, just tell your friends about Queer as Fact. Word of mouth really helps us as well. We acknowledge the peoples of the Kulin Nation and pay our respects to their elders past and present. We acknowledge and uphold their continuing connection to the land on which this podcast is recorded. We'll be back next week on the 15th of April when I'll be talking to you about the Iranian trans activist Mariam Khatun Mulkara. Thanks for listening and we'll see you then.